Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Todd Fonestock. Now, he is a fantasy author, very prolific. Um, some of his series, and I'm not going to include them all, um, but I have a list here. The Eldros Legacy, Tower of the Four, Threadweavers, The Wishing World, The Whisper Print, and then it looks like a couple standalone, or is the urban fantasy Charlie Fiction, is that going to be continued on as a series? Uh, maybe, probably not. For now, we'll just say it's a standalone. Depends standalone. on if news takes me, so... And uh, Summer of Fetch looked like a standalone as well. Definitely a standalone. Yep. And then you have uh, a piece of nonfiction work that looked like uh, it was about you and your son going on an adventure together. Uh, yeah. Like in the Colorado yeah. Trail. I bet that was a special experience for you. It was uh, probably the one of the best moments of my life. I mean, like, it's sort of hard to decide what the best moment you know when you've had two kids it's like oh well the birth that was a pretty dang good moment and then you know when i got married to my wife also a dang good moment so like there's a lot of really good ones but man I, as far as like rearing children i think it was probably the moment that i had the largest opportunity to do something good for one of my kids you know it was amazing it was amazing that's awesome now um you have a book coming up to be released now this will go out probably in january or early february so this will be in the past for everybody but uh, the Slate Wizards, which is the first gotcha. book of the Whisper Prince, is coming out December 15th. So if you haven't picked that up, pick that up. Correct. Yep. It's coming up in just a few, well, for us time, a few days. For right. those of you watching this like a month or so ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, Todd, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm Todd Fonestock, um, and uh, I write mostly epic fantasy novels. My Branding is edge of your seat, epic fantasy, all of the deep world building, all of the complex characters, none of the boring bits. Uh, one of the, the largest, uh, not largest, but like one of the most frequent comments I get in my reviews is that uh, people are staying up late at night, kind of turning the pages. So I tend to keep things moving when, uh, when, I, when I spin a story. Um, so I've been writing since I was 18 years old. So, you know, like good five, six years ago when I started. No. Uh, <laughs> way back in the dark ages of the 1980s was when I started uh, writing books. And uh, been time. I've been able to write full time since 2017, and I uh, have 24 books out there at this point. And you mentioned all of the series. That was great. I was very impressed. Um, and uh, um, I have a few one-offs, but like I said, mostly what I write is what I would consider high fantasy. That is to be putting it as a counterpoint against grimdark fantasy. So grimdark would be like Game of Thrones, right? Where you know you've got a major character and they might die by the end of the book, right? Whereas High fantasy is more like Lord of the Rings. Like there's go, they're going to go through hell and back, but they're probably going to come out on top in the end. Is more more high fantasy. So I I tend to keep things optimistic. That's my that's my uh, that's my goal and sort of my personality as well. So, which is awesome. I mean, when you when you pick up a book like this, I don't know about you, but I was a kid in the, the 80s and 90s where I was reading Lord of the Rings and Shannara and stuff, and you latched on to characters and you love them and you wanted to see them see them succeed. Right? So like. Exactly. Uh, for, for people who like that, like, you know, your, your books are wonderful. You know, in my college years, uh, you know, I, I picked up Game of Thrones and I like that as well because you never knew uh, if your favorite characters was going to win or not. Yeah. And it's a totally different dynamic, but there is something about optimism and knowing like you, you because I don't know about you, but like every character becomes a part of you, right? Like every, every character, like you latch on to like I'm a little bit of Samwise Gamgee and Aragorn and everything. So like, exactly. Yeah. To, to see him lose, like that's, that's heartbreaking. Now, Lee, you said you're kind of, you know, you have a, 
uh, people come up to you and tell you that, you know, they stay up late because it's such a page turner. Now that is yeah. a skill. How do you, how did you develop that skill to write fast page to where like, you know, you go through a chapter and at the end of the chapter, you want to keep continue reading? Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I think there are so many different skills that you can bring to the craft of writing. And um, that particular one, uh, I'm a big believer of payoff. Okay. So if you promise something at the beginning of a book and you don't pay your reader off, you're going to have some angry readers. Right. I mean, like, or people will just put the book down. Like that's the biggest danger these days is, is actually holding an audience. There's so much competition for your attention in this world that you really have to pay attention to what is it the people want and then delivering what they want. So with that sort of page turner thing, first of all, it's developing credibility with the reader, you know, especially if they don't know your stuff, you know, they, you need to assure them that they're, you're going to take them where they want to go, right? You're going to take them on a journey that they signed up for. I mean, like if you write fantasy and you are, you know, essentially presenting it as fantasy, part of that is, building the credibility, knowing that they're going to get paid off when I, when I bring something up, it's going to show up in the end and then throwing in cliffhangers at the end of the chapters. Right. So you get to a point in the chapter where it's like, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And then the door opens and -and so-and-so comes in and that's the end of the chapter. It's like, well, what's he doing there? You know, I got to find out at least a little bit next. And then, you know, you start building that credibility again over the course of the chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, drop another cliffhanger. But the the thing is, if you drop a cliffhanger and you're not, you haven't built the credibility that you're going to pay them off, then they might get upset and throw the book across the room. It's like, well, he's done four cliffhangers in a row and I haven't gotten anything that I wanted yet. I mean, like that's when readers get upset, right? And throw the book across the room. So it's a matter of threading in smaller payoffs to build that credibility and then saving the larger payoffs for the end so that you can build that tension because it's, it's tension as well. You don't want to just give them everything right up front. Otherwise there's no journey. Right. So it's, it's, I think in building the skill, it's just try and flex your muscles in that area, I guess is the best way to do it. And then build up those muscles that tell you, you know, okay, you need to give a little something away here and you need to save this. It's, I don't know. I mean, it's an art, right? So sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't, (laughs) I try, I try to do it every time, but uh, it's, I'm not always successful, but apparently I'm successful enough of the time that, uh, that that seems to be something that's, that's a general opinion of my stories at this point. I have a great story for you on that, that note. Actually, I was at Fanex in Salt Lake City and um, this guy, Levi. So if Levi, if you're watching this, hi, uh, I met him for the first time at Fanex and he came up on a Friday, I believe it was, and he bought Kyvan the Unkillable. And, and uh, you know, it was one of those where when I'm talking to people, like you never know if I'm a snake oil salesman, right? I mean, like if you've never met me before, it's like, okay, yeah, of course, everybody wants to talk about their books and t- say how great their books are. But right. like, you know, I told him the, the, the story and, you know, told him a little hook for the story. And he's like, okay, okay, I'll get the first one. It was Kyvan the Unkillable, which is the first in the Eldros Legacy. And he's like, okay, I'll get the first one, you know, and he, and he took it and he, and he went away. And then he came back the next day. He's like, okay, I was up until 3 a.m. reading this. Give me all of them. Six more books, something like that. He just got the whole thing. So that is one of those con stories that just, it's one of my favorite moments, you know? I mean, like what I wrote really got him and he came back for more. There is, there is no higher praise in my opinion for an author. So I was just giddy about the whole thing. You know, I mean, he was, he was a little suspicious to start once he got into the story, boom, Um, he, he was off and running. So that was, I just love telling that story. It's one of my favorites. That's amazing. And and you're right, it is a skill. And I think that for fantasy novels in general, they sometimes don't have that fast pace, like they get 
you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's world building and, you know, you get lost in lore and stuff, and which is fantastic. Like you can immerse yourself in a story. Um, but if people that are watching this and want to learn skills like this, like pick up Todd's book to, to kind of learn, but also like thrillers are really good. At this. I, I love James Rollins books. I don't know if you know who he is, but like, yeah, you know, he's fast paced cliffhangers every chapter. And, you know, you, you stay up there because of it. Um, thrillers. Um, that's the only thing that comes to mind right now, like James Rollins. Oh, uh, like the Duinty Code. Like uh, Dan Brown yeah. does does a good job of that as well. So, um, you know, as you did you learn from any anybody, or did you pick up things like that? Like, was there anybody that well, was an example to you? I think it was. I mean, like, yes. So the answer to that question is, of course, I've learned from so many of the masters that write fantasy. I mean, I've read so many. Sort of sinks into you, you know, um, but. Specifically, I couldn't point to one specific author that like, oh, I went to this workshop and like he was talking about edge of your seat epic fantasy. I mean, it's kind of the brand that I've built over time because I don't like to be bored. I am ADHD through and through. And so like I got to be entertained all the time. And so even when I'm writing pretty much the way that I've elevated my skills is if I've done something that's sort of been done before. I get bored and I don't want to do that that way again. Right. So I got to come up with a clever way to do it. And so with the whole edge of your seat epic fantasy. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to knock uh, standard fantasy or like, you know I mean? Like the, the type of fantasy that, that people are in love with. Cause I'm in love with it too. And, and some people really love those drawn out descriptions, the beautiful lyrical prose that goes to describe a castle or a cabinet or whatever it is that they're describing. Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but what, what I have worked on doing is what I call organic weaving of the three basic uh, story elements. So plot, setting, character, right? Those are of a, a story, right? And essentially during, there was a two-year period where I workshopped my own stuff with actually with Chris, Chris Mandeville. She was very much doing this with me as well. We actually have a, Chris Mandeville's another author. She writes fantastic um, young adult uh, story. She's got a time travel series um, called Quake, Shake and Break that is is a really great series. But she and I would do this workshop where we would talk about building better beginnings. So the first paragraph of a story is going to be the most read bar none, right? I mean, people, that's when people, you, you get a chance to hook somebody. I mean, used to be, you get 50 pages, you know, 50 years ago, you get 50 pages to hook somebody. And then 10 years ago, you get 10 pages. And now it's like, if you don't get them in the first page, you may lose them, right? So the idea was to workshop those paragraphs, those sentences, almost like poetry. I'm not saying write poetry, but I'm saying pay enough attention to it that it's doing exactly the work that you want it to do to get them into the story, right? And you can be a little bit more loose when you get into the story, but in those first paragraphs, like you got to win them over, right? So that means being able to tell more with less. That's the whole notion of poetry anyways, right? As you're trying to tell volumes by using just the right word and like i said i'm not saying drill down that much but organic weaving of those three basic story elements means that when you write a sentence and all it does is build the setting you're not doing enough work with that sentence right what you want it to do is at least double work and when you're lucky sometimes triple work and that is to say you write something that illustrates a little bit of the character and also the setting that they're in right so couldn't tell one without the other but then you've nailed two birds with one stone right you've right. you've built a little bit of the setting you've built a little bit of the character and then the next sentence you move forward the plot and build a little bit more of the character do double work there and then if you see the opportunity where it's like setting character and plot all in one sentence so it's it's boiling it down to that sort of extract, you know, to that, that condensation of, of what you're trying to do all at once. So everything, everywhere, all at once, which actually I just 
named a movie. If you've never seen that movie, it's a great movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think I think it applies in this case. At least that phrase applies to to writing. You know, I mean, if you're and, and again, I want to I can't stress this enough. Like you shouldn't necessarily be doing it all the time because then it gets really thick. Right. I, and I'm not a big fan of chewy prose. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people who are very literary want everything to mean so much in every single sentence. I like to provide something that moves quickly and that is digestible and that, you know, people can, uh, people can relax and read, but it's good to have both tools, right. Let's to be able to turn it on when you need to, and then turn it off when you don't have to have it. So I hope that answers the question. No, that's amazing. And one of the things that I, I find interesting is when, when you're talking like developing, um, you know, the plot character and setting, like, how do you maintain that throughout the whole chapter? And like, do you outline, do you free write? I mean, coming up with, you know, uh, a hook, a cliffhanger, you know, cliff, uh, a hook and a cliffhanger all in each chapter is difficult. Are you able to do that on the fly? Yeah, I am a dyed in the world pantser. However, having said that, I have done a lot of work trying to be able to plot as well. Um, I am a huge fan of the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Um, everybody should know that at this point, Star Wars was pretty much built on that template, like the original uh, A New Hope Star Wars, right? Um, I'm also a huge fan of Save the Cat, which was originally a structure for screenwriters and Save the Cat writes a novel by Jessica Brody. I'm oh, sorry, Save the Cat was by Blake Snyder and um, uh, Save the Cat Writes a Novel is by Jessica Brody. She essentially took what he did and sort of just massaged it to do, to, to, to apply to novels specifically. Both of them are great reads. I mean, the Save the Cat is, is a classic. And, and the reason I think that it is so well known and kind of burst out of its own genre, because like I said, it was a screenplay writing how-to and it was so, it nailed story so effectively that it was you it's used Jessica Brody wrote save the cat writes a novel people were using save the cat and then just twisting it and, and making it fit novels because it understood story so well so I think it's important like I said before with the tools like you got to have these tools and be able to turn them on when you can it's good to be educated about these things and I'm not saying you always have to use them I'm not saying follow save the cat every single time although I have for the last like four or five novels and you can see my game uh, increasing. Um, I get, I'm getting more awards for what I'm doing. I'm getting better response for what I'm doing. So it's important to understand that. So here's how it goes for me these days. I will use Save the Cat and the Beat Sheet to kind of lay out the basic structure of a book. I did this with Kive and the Unkillable. And so they separated into act one, two, and three, right? So with act one, I will lay it out. And I do like, I follow that 90%. When I start writing, it's 90%. And then I start writing uh, act two and I use about 50% of what I plotted out. And then act three, about 10%. I mean, like everything gets thrown out the window by the end, but it's a roadmap and you should use it as you need to. And if you need to go off the main interstate to go off on a little adventure, you know, on side, side roads and things, you should do that. And, and in fact, what I love so much about pantsing is that you can surprise yourself and you can bet your, bet your, yeah, whatever that if you, if you can surprise yourself, you're going to surprise readers as well, right? So that's one of the things that I love about pantsing and why I will never stop being a pantser completely is because it can bring up stuff that I never saw coming, you know, that my subconscious has been working on and my conscious mind doesn't know anything about. But when I'm writing, it can come out and be delightful, uh, a delightful surprise for the reader. So it's interesting what I found out interviewing, you know, 50 plus authors um, is Everybody, like some people will say they're an outliner and somebody will say they're a pantser and they use the exact same process. Like they'll have bullet points 
<laughs> and you know they'll, they'll they'll use it as a skeleton and then fill it in and people some people will be like oh yeah i'm an outliner i have my i know how i want to start i know my middle i know i know i have certain guideposts whatever and then like i, I go and people like you will be like oh yeah i have certain guideposts but i'm a pantser because like i don't it's it's kind of interesting that the two dynamics even though they're doing the exact same process some people consider it pantsing and some people will consider it you know outlining it's it's, it's yeah. kind of funny yeah. And the way I used to write, I mean, I had no structure at all. I would start with chapter one and that would lead to chapter two and that sort of thing. And I mean, you can write a book that way because we know story. You know, one of the things that uh, Dean Leslie Smith talks about in one of his workshops is that we know story. We've known story since we were three years old and we started listening to The Little Mermaid, you know, or whatever it is that was that we watch in movies or that we our parents read to us, you know, but we just have to get out of our own way. Like we understand the structure and if we just relax, it's going to turn out all right in the end. It's going to, I mean, like we'll come around now revision. You may have to cut some things out or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all, there are many, many, many variables to writing and many, many, many different ways that we can get in our own way. The demons that are alive in our head will take an ax to us every chance they get. Right. Um, and it can come from any direction, but we understand this stuff. And the more we can get out of our own way, the more we can do it. So the reason that I do structure first and then let myself go is because if ever I get lost, it is quicker for me to go back and touch base with the structure. Whereas in the past, when I would just do this whole novel, I might get 75% of the way through the novel and go, I've gone down a wrong path. I, I gotta, I gotta delete, you know, 20,000 words and then rewrite it. Whereas if with the structure, I get to a point, I'm like, this doesn't feel quite right. What did I do in the structure? Oh, and so I don't have to then go back and delete them. So it just makes it a faster process, not necessarily better, but faster because there is an advantage to writing that 20,000 words because then you know exactly what you don't want to do. And when you go and rewrite it, it's going to be far more on point. You know, I mean, like and if, if everybody's different, like somebody, maybe they could make that on point you know, call just from the structure. Again, I, I'm a big fan of saying there is no right way to write a novel. And so if something that I say rings a bell with you, run with it. If something that I say, you're like, oh, that's the biggest piece of tripe I ever heard. That doesn't work. It probably doesn't work for you, right? And you shouldn't <laughs> use it. I'm not saying, you know, that I know how to write the perfect novel. If, if anybody knew how to write the perfect novel, they just crank out bestsellers one after the other after the other, you know, these worldwide bestsellers. Nobody knows, like nobody knows exactly what to do to do that. I mean, sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're not, sometimes you're interfacing with the audience and sometimes they've moved on to something else and you got to scramble to reinvent yourself. All that stuff is in motion all the time. Right. Um, so, so I just think who are writers and want to do this, you should take it and put it in your toolbox. And you know, maybe you're going to use it every single time you write a novel. And maybe you're going to use it one out of a hundred times when you need it. Who knows? But it's good to have more tools. I don't think there's ever been a time where I've been like, oh, I have too many tools to use. This is holding back. You know, it, it, that, that doesn't ever happen. Right. And one of the reasons why I do this, and if you listen to, if you follow along this journey that I've done, that I've, you know, interviewed so many authors and stuff, I... And people might get sick of the same questions to everybody all the time. But what might work with Todd might not be uh, work for somebody else. And, you know, everybody has these different talents and, and different ways of doing stuff. So, like, I ask the same questions to everybody because everybody's different and everybody learns at a different pace and everybody works at a different pace and everybody's little habits are different. And so, like, everybody has these nuggets of gold that they can get. And so... You know, I ask the same questions every single time to everybody because everybody's different. And what works for Todd might not work for you. And what works for you might not work for Todd. So it's good to get these perspectives from everybody. So you, you exactly. mentioned 
Yeah, you, you mentioned, um, you know, these, these tools in your toolbox, and you mentioned something earlier that I want to go back to is tropes. How does understanding tropes help you become a better writer? So I think at a certain point as a writer, you you click into wanting to deliver to the reader what they want, right? I mean, so so let's be honest, like you don't become a writer if you're not at least a little self-involved. You have to be in order to pull letters and create this world. And so much of the first few books I think anybody writes is all the catharsis of getting all that stuff out, right? You're kind of writing for yourself and you never stop completely writing for yourself. But at least for me, at a certain point, I turned a corner where I'm like, okay, I've done 11 books now, 12 books now, and I know how to write for myself. So now I need to take that skill of being able to write for myself and then start thinking about, okay, how am I going to apply this to an interface that's going to work for someone else and, and sort of integrate myself with the readership. Right. So, um, so I think that, that, uh, that, that's, that's like a major step. So essentially, once you get to that point, the tropes essentially delineate um, what audience you're going for, right? Certain people like certain tropes and that's that, that's their candy. And they're not thinking about structure. They're not thinking about the wizard behind the curtain. They age in a house with a monster and find out a way to escape, right? That's the, I'm going to use save the cat terms. These are all save the cat um, uh, genres. He kind of reinvented the notion of genre instead of going, you know, romance novel, fantasy novel, you know, uh, thriller novel. He, he kind of redefined it such that you could have a romance novel that's actually a monster in the house story. So monster in the house is what most horror movies and stories are, right? Essentially, you're trapped in a place, doesn't have to be a house, but you could be like on a boat at sea and, you know, there's there's a monster that's there with you and you can't get away from it, right? Like that's the whole monster in the house. Uh, Golden Fleece is like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. It's like there's something that you have to go after and get and then everything will be fine. It's an adventure. It's a, it's a you know, most fantasy novels are a Golden Fleece kind of story, right? Um, let's see, what's another one? Buddy Love, right? Most romance, so he uses Buddy Love because it can apply to uh, a non-romantic relationship, like say Lethal Weapon, right? That's a Buddy Love story. Like these guys are like fighting one another and they finally get together and they can win the day in the end. That's a Buddy Love story. But buddy love can also be romance. It's like you got two people that are fighting and then they're going to get together in the end, except there's sex involved, right? I mean, like that's what romances, romance stories are. That's that trope. But it's the same. He he submits that it's the same trope. It's just two different genres, right? I mean, so, or anyways, it's, it's the same type of story. It's just two different- uh, Size uh, of the coin type thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so understanding what your audience wants and making sure that you have a checklist- that hits those tropes okay the hit, hits the trope that they that they want so for example kaivin the unkillable let's use a specific example because i find that salient details are, are easier to digest than just talking in concepts um so kaivin the unkillable uh is is a dungeons and dragons style epic fantasy that's not to say lit rpg it's not the lit rpg is very specifically like you're building levels and the this is like Lord of the Rings kind of epic fantasy, but it's Dungeons and Dragons style. And by that, I mean, you've got a party of people and they do fit those, those, you know, the, the warrior, the thief, the ranger slash queen, the magic user, all they, they fit this trope and they have to come together to figure this out. Right. And so when I, when I say that it's a, you know, this Dungeons and Dragons epic style fantasy trope, I have created this checklist. It's okay. People that like Dungeons and Dragons, what do they like? They like fight scenes. They like usage of magic. They like, a party coming together. They like dungeon crawls. They like lots of creative monsters, right? So I've got this checklist. And if ever I'm like deviating too much into this, oh, there's this 
relationship between the elf and the human and da, 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 and I've gone down a rabbit hole there. It's like, well, that's good. But when's the last time you checked one of the check boxes? Because romance is not necessarily one of those things that you want to check off necessarily in a Dungeons and Dragons style trope. And it's okay because that's my personal flair. And I like a little bit of romance in just about every story that I write, not a dominant flavor, but like, you know, a, an accent flavor. But if I spend too long, that credibility that I was talking about again, people came along with me because this was the D&D style fantasy. You're going to be like, okay, when's the next monster, dude? You know, so you got to make sure you, re you visit that checklist. So that's why tropes are important. It's not that you got to write the same story every time. It's that you got to pay attention to the fact that your reader wants a certain thing. And if you're wanting to interface with that reader, you need to give them that certain thing enough so that they stay with you. And I think everybody has a different writing style. And what you want eventually is a group of readers that likes Todd Bonestock style, right? So so they're going to get into and sort of, and, and learning a style, just like anything, like learning a skill, learning how to play tennis or learning how to ride a bike, like it kind of is a little strange in the beginning, but then eventually you get to it and then you really love to run with it. And that's what you want. Nothing else, you want to do nothing else except play tennis or nothing else except ride a bike. And I think that's, that's a way that new authors can bring readers in. It's like, okay, here's the trope you love and here's my style of how I do it and kind of get them used to your style until your style is what they crave, right? That is the ideal. And I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I've achieved that at this point, but that's the ideal, I think. No, that's, that's some great advice. Um, one of the books that I love about writing um, is Drawing on the Power of Residence by Dave Farland, Dave Woolerton. And, and he talks about um, mm, how, yeah. um, how different stories resonate with people. And when you get that resonance, uh, resonance out of sync, like it can throw a reader off. So, you know, what, what you're saying is, is fantastic and, and it relates to that. So you said you've been writing since you're 18 years old and you, yeah. when, when you were young, um, you sold some short stories to TSR um, in a yeah. Dungeons and Dragons anthology. As a young writer, like how thrilled were you that TSR, one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, like picked that can't, up? Yeah, I can't even describe. Because I mean, that was my favorite series at the time. And the idea of being able to write a short story uh, was just, um, it was, it was, I was over the moon about the whole thing. And there's quite a story to that too. I mean, like everybody asks you, like, how do you, how did you get a short story published with TSR? Or, you know, how did you get this contract? Or how did you meet that person? And, you know, I wish there was a template for that, but it's so random. And this story will illustrate what I'm talking about. Living in Bemidji, Minnesota, of all places, like, I mean, the, the far frozen North, right? Um, and uh, in the winter, in fact. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think this time was more like spring when this happened. Now that I think about it, because I remember there wasn't like just a crazy amount of snow on the ground. But anyways, my mom's boyfriend at the time was friends with this guy named Gary Paulson. You may know Gary Paulson from the uh, I think some of his famous books were Hatchet. Hatchet was yeah. Yeah. Famous books. Uh, Dog Song was another big one. Um, but I think Hatchet is his probably most famous book. And uh, at the time, I didn't, I didn't know who that was. I, I didn't read that kind of story. Right. Um, and, uh, and they didn't teach it at my school. I think they teach that book at schools, or at least they use it in classrooms a lot. It's a, it's a, if you've never read Hatchet, I mean, that is evergreen. That is a great story. Um, I read it again, not too long ago. And I'm just like, wow, this is just, it's just so good. It's such a great story. Anyways, um, for all ages too, for all ages. Um, and, uh, and so mom's like, yeah, I could introduce you. He's an author. I'm like, cool. That'd be great. Cause like, yeah, he may be able to give you some advice on how to get an agent or a publisher or whatever. I'm like, that would be awesome. And so he sets up this appointment where I'm going to drive out like everything in Bemidji is like, you know, I mean, like 
people live in the country up there, right? And so Bemidji is this small town, but like there's a lot of people living. So he lived 11 miles out of town on this back dirt road, right? And so my girlfriend at the time was supposed to drive me out there. And she was a bit of a flake and she totally flaked on me at the end. And I'm panicked. I'm like, I've got this appointment with this guy in like an hour and I've got no way to get out there. I worked at the time at the truck and cafe, which was this little truck stop uh, on the highway. And one of the dishwashers said, well, I guess I could do it if you, you know, if you pay me $15, I'm like, fine, I'll pay you $15. Just take me out there. I didn't know how I was going to get back, you know? And, and, and that was actually a, a worry because, you know, walking 12 miles, my word processor was called a brother word processor. Now this was in the days before Microsoft had taken over the entire market. Right. So it was like, this big by this big and this thick. I mean, it was not these little laptops we're carrying around. This thing had to be like 25 pounds and it had this <laughs> like steel arm that like you could carry it with. So this was what was portable back in 1990, right? Um, and, and it had like, it didn't even have a hard drive. It had, you put in discs and you just wrote straight onto a three and a half inch floppy disk, ejected the disc when it got full and put in another one. That was, there was no hard drive, right? Um, and it was all just its own brother program. There was no... <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, you children don't know. You don't even know what we had to deal with back in the day. Anyway, so I get dropped off in the middle of nowhere to meet this guy. And, you know, by then I had done some research. I'm like, this guy is an international bestseller, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm here with him. And so he invites me to his house. Super cool guy sits down. He's like, okay, show me, uh, show me a sample of your writing. And so I like opened up my little brother laptop and laptop. It's, it's not a laptop. My brother word processor. And like, I show him, you know, my, my favorite chapter, the chapter that I thought was really good, you know? And he like, he looks at it for this long. I kid you not. He's like, first chapter. And I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> he didn't like it. Okay. So I'm like, I show him the first chapter and he goes, I'm, I'm not kidding you about that long. He's like, okay. And I'm like, oh, well, it was worth, it was worth a shot, you know? Cause he stops reading and he's like, you're good. I'll recommend you. I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> he's like, he's like, yeah, but this is not really my genre. Let me, um, let me uh, connect you with a friend of mine, uh, Margaret Weiss. She does fantasy. At this point, I'm starting to shake. I'm like, wait, Margaret Weiss, like the Margaret Weiss, you're going to introduce me to Margaret Weiss. She writes my favorite books ever. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll just, uh, you know, anyway, so that's how I got connected with Margaret. And that's how the whole thing began. Um, I sent wow. her five of my work. She like, deleted three of them and said this is all exposition get rid of it and uh and then she's like would you like to do a short story in this anthology and that's that's how it began that's that was my very first introduction to that so that's amazing and it's amazing like as an author how far your um impact goes like margaret weiss like influenced you uh margaret weiss i don't know if you know this but um she influenced jim but butcher when he was in high school like it was just a chance meeting in margaret weiss Weiss influenced him so like just yep. you know these these little outreaches like you know in, who knows what will come with this interview it might come to nothing but somebody might listen to him and be like you know what? I want to you know pursue this so they might be the right. next right. yeah you, you just never know um so so thank you for that now um going back to the beginning I did not mention one series and that is the Hearthstone Hearthstone trilogy uh with Giles Carwin yep I, I didn't I didn't mention that um so how how is it different writing with a partner versus, I mean, right on your own, you're in charge of everything. So like, how's right. that dynamic um, writing with somebody else? So I think it's probably different with every collaboration that has ever existed, but my experience was with Giles and we were best friends, right? I mean, we just were 
like we had done everything together. We, we grew up in high school together. We went to college together. We, you know, lived in close proximity for like 10 years after that. We went on so many different adventures together. In fact, the, uh, the character gauge in summer of the fetch, which is probably 25% autobiographical for me and 75% pure, wonderful, magical stuff. Right. But, um, uh, the, the best friend character gauge in that is based, based largely on Giles, um, uh, my, my co-author for Hearthstone Trilogy. So my experience in collaborating with him was, I mean, it was like playing D&D with your best friend. Like when you're, when you're like, you know, making up the stuff uh, in the beginning, it's like, this is, wow, this is so much easier and so much fun than doing it on my own. And it went so much faster because we just play off each other. You know, I'd dry up on ideas and then he would like come up with some ideas and then we just, we would, we would run it up to a fever pitch. Right. Um, so that part was other writers in Eldritch Legacy and the brainstorming part is, it's absolute heaven. It's like, you just, you're playing off one another. Then the writing part was about the same. I mean, like with Giles and I, the way that we did it is he would write the synopsis. I would write the actual prose and then he would go back and edit the prose. And then I would go back and, um, you know, put in more stuff or, you know, pick a bone of contention with what he had added or changed or whatever. Um, and that's where it got sticky. That's where it was less fun. And it put a huge strain on our friendship by the time we got done with that, with that trilogy. It was, it was unfortunate because I think we created something really great together. But by the time we were done, we were just exhausted and needed to take a break because the beginning, like I said, best thing ever, right? And then you get to the writing part and that's about the same. And then you get to the editing part and it is cats and dogs, you know? It's like, no, we needed this part that I put in. He's like, no, I took it out because it's completely irrelevant to what we're trying to do. I'm like, it's relevant to what I'm trying to do. I mean, like that's, those are the kinds of conversations that would start happening. And um, I remember a specific moment where we had a conversation and, and this is back in the day when like we actually had home phones, except they had just lost their cords. So it was like a cordless phone really cool right um <laughs> and i remember throwing the cordless phone i had never thrown a phone in my life but i threw it across the room you know it was just that the conversation got so heated that i was just like i'm done with this conversation and laura was like hey we just paid 40 dollars for that phone so i had to go buy a 40 dollar phone <laughs> <laughs> no well, that's unfortunate but um i guess when you're working with a partner like stuff like that can can happen i mean you got two two personalities trying to tell the same story it's it, it can be rough um and and that was picked up by harper collins um yeah you know that was that was traditionally published um how has going down the indie path um helped you or, or some what are some challenges with that so um so i would say like there are bonuses to both sides right i mean big names we know almost all of them are traditionally published right um uh, you know, if you if you think about the, you know, the the names like, you know, James Patterson or or Stephen King or, you know, I mean, like these are these are like, you know, Terry Brooks or George Martin, uh, Brandon Sanderson. Like, I mean, these are big names that are traditionally published, although Brandon Sanderson did uh, take a take a detour recently with his uh, his Kickstarter campaign. That was yeah, that was quite much. Um, but uh, the cool thing is, is you're you're operating with professionals when it's traditionally published, you're operating with professionals at a very high level. These people are very schooled in what they do. Uh, I worked with this editor, Bess, Cos uh, Bess Cosby, when I was with Tor Books um, for The Wishing World, and she was magnificent. I mean, like this woman, like she, we'd met once and she was so good at identifying and understanding story that she 
point like like so here's kind of the way it was i would write this book and there's a certain part where i'm like i feel like there could be more here but I, this is good i think it's good I, maybe i'm just over overthinking it right and she would go straight to that spot without me having said anything and go you know you never answer the question this year. I'm like, that's what it is. That's what I needed there. I mean, like she would read my mind and then go further and like, give me the editors are like good editors are magic. And unfortunately there's a lot of bad editors out there, like editors that are like, you know, they say, Oh yes, I'm a good editor. And then they just tear your work to shreds and don't really understand the essence of what you're trying to do. But in my opinion, a good editor, and these are rare, a good editor is somebody that you can, that, that like sees what you're trying to do and helps you get there, right? They're not trying to enforce their agenda on you at all, not at all. They are trying to make your work more like your work. That's what they're doing, right? And like I said, it's a rare skill, but when it is, it's it's magic. Uh, I think Stephen King was the one that said, to write is human, to edit is divine. And I know he's talking about those editors, right? Um, and I think as, a, as an author, so kind of sliding into the indie side of things, as an author and indie author, you got to choose your editor. You don't get assigned an editor um, and they could be highly educated in, in, in as an editor and have lots and lots of skill and lots and lots of, of uh, experience doing it. Or they could be fresh off the editor. I want to be an editor boat, right? You know, you just don't know what, what you're going to get. You, you know, it, and so it's it, as an author, as an indie author, you have to be your own CEO. You know, you have to be like, okay, is this going to be good for my writing or is it not going to be good for my writing? And you have to be able to tell people, I'm sorry, we're just not, we're just not compatible. It's not going to, it's not going to work out between the two of us. So I'm going to, you know, do something else. I mean, you have to be able to make those decisions and, and, you know, I think sooner than sooner is better than later. Right. Right. Um, um, Cause I've, I've had a couple where I paid some money to get something done. And when it got done, I was like, I could have done this better myself, which is really what you want to be saying uh, when you get done with, with, uh, you know, but I've been that, that, that is like once or twice that that's happened to me. I have been so blessed to work with so many fantastic editors um, uh, over, over my career. It's really been, it's really been a blessing for sure. Well, like you said, you're in charge of everything as an indie author. How did you go about finding your, your editor and your cover artist? You got great covers. Oh, thanks. Well, I can, I can talk about, uh, well, I'll get to Rasha in a second, but yeah, my current editor that I do for my stuff is Mandy Haup and she's fantastic. Like, um, I met her through Pikes Peak Writers Conference year after year after year where we've been in the same circles for a good long while. And, uh, she was actually recommended to me by Chris Mandeville, who I'd mentioned before, uh, uh that we do workshops together and stuff. And I was like, Oh, I didn't, I mean, Mandy's a writer also. I'm like, I didn't know Mandy edited. And so we connected and her personality fits my personality. Well, she likes my stuff. She understands what I'm trying to do with it. And we just got a really good, uh, good relationship. But I mean, stuff like that, like people like that, they're gold, you know, I mean, like you right. want to hang on. So speaking of uh, gold, also Rashid Alakroka is my cover artist. And um, I tell you, Rashid has helped increase the reach and the visibility of my career. And I just got so, so essentially <laughs> you'll notice I keep mentioning Chris Mandeville. Um, we joke, I call her my avatar because she is like, she is, is um, uh, interwoven through so many aspects of my career. And we've just been, you know, super good friends for a very long time. Um, uh, we started a, write, a writer's group. Or we started, we met each other in a writer's group. I met her at Pikes Peak Writers Conference also um, for the very first time. She was the one who got me at the seat at the table when I was talking to Donald Moss, a big high-powered New York agent. Um, and um, and uh, he was the one that 
that sold the Hearthstone trilogy to Harper Collins. So all of that from Chris Vanderbilt and also Rashid Alakroka from Chris Vanderbilt because Chris Vanderbilt because her son went to CU Boulder and was either roommates or friends with Rashid, who also went to CU Boulder. Um, and so that's how I got introduced to him. He wanted to, he was an engineer and in Kuwait, essentially you go to school for what you're going to do and then you get put on a waiting list and then they, they tell you when your job is available for your particular skill and your particular education and they slot you into that job. And so I, while he was waiting, I think it was like a year or even two years that he was waiting for this, he was kind of tinkering around with his true passion, which is to do art, right? And um, so right about there was where I met him and he was like, I was like, you know, I need covers for my, my Threadweaver series. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll do them. He's like, I'll do them. I'm, I'm tinkering with this program and I'd really like to, to try my hand at that. And he's like, I won't even charge you anything. I was like, no, 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 no. Let me pay. I mean, like you, you deserve to get paid for your work. Let me pay you for your work. And uh, he's like, well, then just pay me like a dollar for each. I'm like, I'm not going to pay a dollar <laughs> for each cover. He's like, I'm just, I just want to like learn this program. And uh, you know, you're kind of like a guinea pig for me. I'm like, let me pay you $110 per cover. He's like, really? Are you sure, man? I'm like, just let me pay you. Right. And of course I'm thinking there's nowhere I could go to get a cover for less than like $300. Right. So right. this is good. It's good for you. Let's, let's just call it good. So and he's so good to work with. Like, I mean, he really is trying to find like, like those good editors I mentioned, he's trying to find the essence of what you're trying to, to portray. And, and, and then, and, and here's, here's a lesson for all of you authors coming up, right? Be nice, be nice to people, treat them with respect and with dignity because you never know when it's going to pay off. I mean, like, I'm not saying that's the reason to do it. It's, it's good to do it just to do it and to be a good person. Right. And, and, you know, like they say that, you know, the, the guy that, you know, I remember hearing this little anecdote when like a girl's like, Oh, well, he's so nice. It's like, well, the guy that's nice to you, but not nice to the waiter. is not a nice person. You know, I mean, like, like you have to, you have to see how they respond to all people. Like if you treat somebody bad that you can get away with treating bad, that's, that says something about you. Right. So anyways, not to dig too deep into that particular thing, but like, no, that's good know, advice I, though. I treated him like a professional from the very beginning. Um, and because of that, we have this fantastic relationship now that, and many other things like we're friends at this point, like I would like to think good friends. And um, I think he enjoys working on my stuff and I definitely enjoy working with him. But I think that initial first interaction really like, you know, I think it bolstered his, his self-esteem on what he was trying to learn at that point. And now you can't get a Rashid cover for less than like, I mean, like it's, it's, it's pricey. Like sometimes like there's some stuff that I've done from him that it, that's like $1,500. Like he, he can command that because he's so freaking good at what he does. And he's doing other projects that are even beyond doing book covers at this point, uh, like concept, concept art and things for companies that I don't even think he can mention at this point because the product has not been released yet. Right. So, um, so it's just, I, I have, I, I just enjoy my relationship with him immensely. I mean, sometimes we'll just get on Skype or discord or whatever. And we'll just, we'll just talk and talk and talk. I'm like, okay, we should probably get to business at this point. Um, but uh, I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I, I live in fear of the day that I'm not going to be able to have Rasha do my covers. Like that's, <laughs> that is a going concern for me. Cause he just, he, he exemplifies the character so perfectly well. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really something it's, it's a, you know, as it is with Mandy, it's like our personalities click and I just don't know what I would do without either of them. I don't know what I would. Oh, I should also mention, sorry, the Eldros Legacy Project. I work with some fantastic editors there as well. Um, Maya Cleave. Um, uh, uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, 
Leslie, um, and now I can't remember her last name. Ah, <laughs> I, I, I don't do well with names, but Leslie, you know who you are. Um, and uh, uh, as well as um, Zach is, is also really good. He, he does the, the final pass on a lot of these and I'm forgetting someone and I'm going to regret forgetting them. Oh no, it's always so bad. Like if I ever had to do like a, a, a you know, a, a speech for some award or something like that, I'm literally going to have to write down all the names because I don't, I don't <laughs> I don't remember them all. So, um, oh, Rob, how? <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Um, so Rob, also fantastic editor, really good um, uh, content and creative editor. So anyways. Well, let's talk about the Edra uh, Legacy Project. Because it is, it's multiple books with different authors, correct? From, correct. from what I was kind of looking. And you've written, you've wrote the first book and then the, the fifth book in that series. Is that correct? But they, or do they coincide together? Are they going so yeah, so, so okay, so The Elder's Legacy is a multi-author, shared world, mega epic fantasy, okay? So essentially, we've got um, four founding authors at this point, um, and they're all creating uh, the meta plot, okay? So imagine it's like the Marvel Universe, right? So let's say I'm writing Captain America, and uh, Mark Stallings is writing Iron Man, and Quincy is writing the Hulk, and uh you know uh, maria's writing black widow right and at a certain point they're all going to come together um in an avengers kind of story right but until then we've all got our sort of singular stories going on towards this big throw the ring into mount doom kind of uh cataclysmic ending that we're going to have we're each going to write about between three and five books a piece i'm a little bit faster um than the rest of them so i'm kind of ahead of the head of the the curve at this point um but that's the idea now in addition to these and and um, like I said, we're kind of undergoing a change. Um, originally, Rob Howell was actually one of the founders. He has since uh, uh, moved on from the group. It was he's just got so much on his plate. So we're we're like four founders now, um, moving the Metaplot story forward, and we're actually re-releasing all of them in January. So January one, there's going to be nine novels like release order, and now we're going to re-release them in story order. So it's going to be Kyvan. Laurel, and then Ren the Traveler, which is coming out in February. So for those of you who are watching this in January, all these books will be out there as, as of now. And Ren is coming up. It's coming up on February 1. It's going to be released or thereabouts. I won't say exactly February 1, but the beginning of the month, um, the first week of the month, it's going to be released. Um, and that will essentially kick off the, the Metaplot. You read through those, through those three, and it's going to lead you right into Seeds of Dominion, which is Quincy's first book in Daemonon. Now, the way that Eldros is structured is we've got five different continents, okay? So we've got Noxanon, which is my continent, Daemonon, which is Quincy's, Pyronon, which is Marie's, and Draconon, which is um, which is uh, Mark's. And then we're we're renaming the fifth continent, like uh, with, with Rob's leaving, we're renaming the fifth continent. It's going to be the continent of mystery. So we're going to kind of have some some mystery going on there with the origin of the, of the giants. And all these continents cannot talk to each other right now. They've got these dimensional doorways called Thuroi that have been closed for 2,000 years. Um, so let, I tell you what, let me back up a little bit and give you the hook. This is what I give at cons when somebody asks me what the Elder's legacy is. Okay, so clear the slate. <laughs> <laughs> 2,000 years ago, there were these, this race of intelligent giants, okay? And they ruled the world of Eldros with an iron fist. All of the other races, humans, dwarves, elves, luminance, uh, Shadowvar, all of the other, dwar uh, other mortal races were slaved to this one master race. Then there was a revolution. They overthrew their overlords, and during the war, 50% of the giants were killed, 50% fled and vanished. 
Now, when the story opens 2,000 years later, we humans, we have a very short attention span, right? And our memory's not so good either. So it's been 2,000 years, and we don't really think the giants ever existed. So to them, it would be like Zeus and Apollo is to us. We know about them, of course, but did they really exist? Uh, I don't think they really did, right? But in the shadows, the giants have not forgotten. And they are building an army that when they're ready to unleash it, it will be impossible for us to stop them. Unless... Of course, we have a group of heroes who can do the impossible. This is always when I turn and point at the cast of characters for Kaivin the Unkillable. Um, so that's the hook for Eldros Legacy. And all of these um, heroes, groups of heroes on the continents are going to come together at a certain point. So that's uh, hopefully that's probably more than you wanted to know about Eldros Legacy. So is this something that you came up with and got these authors involved with, or are you guys just all taking it at a con or roundtable or online or something? Or like, hey, let's no. I was the Johnny come lately. So oh, I, okay. Yeah, I was. So the group of um, Rob, Quincy, Marie, and Mark had already come together, and they actually had a fifth who essentially bowed out at the, in the ninth hour said, look, you guys, I got – I got a new wife. I got a new kid. I, you know, I just, I don't have the time to put into this to, to do it right. Right. So he gracefully bowed out and they're like, well, who else should we get? So I was the last <laughs> that was added. And so um, pretty much when they were hunting around for somebody, both uh, Marie and Mark were like, oh, we got to get Todd. They called me up and they said, you know, what do you think? I'm like, well, that sounds fantastic. And ironically, not ironically, I guess synergistically, I was looking for a collaboration at that moment. And I was trying to cobble one together from like three non-fantasy writers. And it we had one meeting and it was, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was like this story run by committee. And we ended up with this like half warmed over, half frozen burrito that wasn't really, you know, Mexican food. And it wasn't really Thai food. And it wasn't, it was just horrible. It was awful. It was just so bad. And so he called up and was like, oh my God, epic fantasy. I told, I want to do that. That sounds great. And so I dove in and started running from the very beginning. And I had my novel done before anybody else even had half of their novel done, um, which was really nice. It kind of created this anchor. It's like, okay, we got one book coming out in December. And then everybody else started um, contributing. But I would like to mention also that we've got our four founders at this point, but we also have, um, uh, gosh, almost a dozen cohort authors. Now, a cohort author is somebody who's not necessarily involved that is not making the meta plot but is like kind of coming in and playing in the world so there will be like little tangential you know moments where they're crossing over the meta plot or maybe meeting one of our characters uh, or something like that but mostly it's like their own little contained story in the land of Noxon or in the land of Drac Dracula so um there's a whole cadre that is is waiting for their books to be released um so we're we're planning to put out one every other month uh going into next year that's our schedule so if you like eldros like start with the kaivin laurel and ren trio that'll get you sunk into the world and then jump into daemon and and you know sink into to daemon because like my my third book ren the traveler takes place in daemon so it's my characters but i'm writing in quincy's content into the the next books perfect that's fantastic now also and you kind of alluded to it um as an indie author you have to market your books you have to, you have yes. to sell it to make it make a living. One of those is with, uh, you know, at cons, you know, you're, you have, like, like I said earlier, like you have uh, multiple books. How do you match the, the person that's coming up to one of your series? So, um, I, a lot of times I don't match them up in the beginning. I essentially, you know, ask them if they're interested in hearing about a book. If they say yes, I mean, I think one of like what helps me bypass that question some of the time because sometimes i do match them up specifically and i'll get to that in a second but most of the time i, I mean 
if you've ever seen my setup at a con, I mean, you know what you're in for. If, I mean, if you don't know that I'm epic fantasy, you're just not looking hard enough. I mean, like right. I got the guy with the sword, I've got the woman wielding magic. It's it's epic fantasy all over the place, right? So chances are, if you're not into that, you're not going to come up and say, yes, I want to hear about a story in the first place. So, um, and I usually start off with my Threadweaver's, uh, Threadweaver's hook. Um, and, uh, and that is like, I mean, that is true blue, epic fantasy you know um and uh and so you know even sometimes people who are not interested in fantasy i've gotten the pitch down so uh, it's it's so refined at this point that they might get interested just because it's a good story right i've had people do that it's like well i don't really usually read fantasy but wow that sounds great i'll give it a try right i get them kind of into the the fantasy genre um but sometimes i'll have somebody who's kind of like kind of looking and they're like i like you know do you do you read a lot for fun she's like oh i read all kinds of stuff i'm like well what's your favorite stuff to read that's how i'll qualify and if they say well i kind of like you know i kind of like sort of gritty urban fantasy stuff and and i'll be like okay come with me over here let me let me talk about charlie fiction this is about a ghost you know it's a little grittier than the stuff that i do um, you know, it's, it's, uh, this time travel novel and I'll say, you know, read the first two paragraphs. You'll, you know, if you have to keep reading, you know, it's your book. Or if they, you know, if they're like, well, I liked, you know, uh, Ernest Klein's ready player one. I'm like, well, I don't have lit RPG, but I've got this 1980s road trip story over here that if you like the eighties, you're going to dig it. You know I mean? Like I'll find something that is similar to what I'm doing because I feel like if they can just get in the story, I think I would say eight times out of 10, I would bet that I could win them over. Even if it's not their genre, um, I bet you I could win them over. And I could be wrong about that, but I've, I've been right enough times that it makes me feel fairly confident. If I can just get them to crack the cover, they're going to have a good time. Awesome. So 2023 is just around the corner. Uh, what conventions are you going to uh, this next year? So Fan Expo Denver, of course. Fan Ex in Salt Lake City, of course. Um, those are on, although I haven't gotten my booth for that yet. I probably need to do that. <laughs> um let's see um albuquerque comic-con i'll be going to in january actually so probably right about the time this airs i'll be at uh, albuquerque comic-con um so come by and see me um <laughs> if you're in albuquerque and then uh let's see what else um oh i'll be going to gary con in wisconsin um i'll be going to planet comic-con in kansas city um and then probably a lot of holiday festival kind of stuff towards the end of the year in Denver. I mean, I did the Christmas market in Denver and I did the Colorado country Christmas gift show in Colorado Springs. I'll probably be re-upping for both of those. Um, so lots of stuff in the Denver area because it's cheaper for me to go and do, but I do like to kind of spread things around and I'm, Oh, uh, this is big news. Sorry. I didn't even think of this is like the biggest news. I will be at San Diego comic-con comic-con international. Oh, nice. Yeah. I got a table. Well, I should I got a table. I love to say that. My assistant, Becca, got me a table at San Diego. I would never have even thought I'd have a chance. And she worked it out and submitted all the right things. And boom, now I've got a table at uh, Comic-Con. I've never been to San Diego Comic-Con before, like as an attendee or as a, a vendor. And I am super over the moon excited about going. So see how that goes. That's awesome. Becca's episode's coming out this Friday. So Oh, cool. Not only is she a fantastic assistant, she's currently my assistant, but um. Uh, she is a, an amazing author um, and she is coming out with a book for Eldros. I don't want to gild the lily too much. It's called World Breaker and it is freaking awesome. So if you've read Kyvin the Unkillable, you've got to read World Breaker because I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there is some crossover between a couple of the characters in Kyvin the Unkillable and Laurel of the Dark 
and a couple of her characters. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> awesome. Well, Todd, tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, where they can find your books. Um, I appreciate yeah, uh, it so much. Yeah. First and foremost, toddfonestock.com, spelled just like it sounds. I'm just kidding. <laughs> F-A-H-N-E-S-T-O-C-K.com. Um, and then, of course, on Facebook, uh, Edge of Your Seat Epic Fantasy is my Facebook group. And then Todd Fonestock, Fantasy Author, is my Facebook page. So any of those places work. I'm also on Instagram because Becca's helping me with that <laughs> because I'm not as savvy about Instagram as anything else, but she's keeping that alive. Um, and uh, there's some good stuff that, that comes up on there as well. I'm trying to think of anything else. I do have a Twitter account. I don't spend much time on Twitter, so that's not the best way to get a hold of me. Um, and it's like kind of like the Wild West over there anyways right now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Kind of is right now. Um, so uh, I think those are those are the best way. Or you can you know just send me send me an email. Um, just hit on my website and you can send me send me a direct communication. Or yeah, I I almost always respond within forty eight hours to somebody messaging me online uh, through Facebook Messenger or Instagram chat or whatever. Any of those is good. Perfect, Todd. Thank you so much for getting on with me today. I learned a lot. I know others will as well. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, everybody get into Eldris Legacy. Ren the Traveler is coming out in just a little while. At least by the time you view this, it will be. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.